Well, this morning, Pastor Kendra's going to be bringing us the message, and as we're going to continue our series in Luke, like I mentioned, with the quizzers, uh, we just want to pray a blessing on her this morning as she has been preparing this morning. So, Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the time of worship that we could have. Lord, we thank you that you are worthy. You are so worthy. And, Father, this morning as we hear your word, I pray that you open our ears to hear not just more knowledge, but an understanding of your heart. Father, I pray that you will uh, give Pastor Kendra the words to share that will communicate your heart to us this morning. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. This morning, as we were worshiping, the... Um, just the, the concept of God's holiness was so strong. And I started thinking about the, the places in Scripture where we see the angels worshiping. And, and what they're doing is they're, they're looking at Jesus, seated on the throne, and then they bow down and they say, He is holy, He is holy, He is holy. And then they look back up at Jesus and they bow down and they say, he is holy, he is holy, he is holy. And in um, Isaiah 66, it says, Isaiah had seen a vision of heaven and he saw the temple in heaven. He saw the Lord seated on the throne, high and exalted, and the train of the Lord's robe filled the temple. Above him were the seraphs, each with six wings. With two wings, they covered their faces. With two wings, they covered their feet. And with two, they were flying. And they were calling out to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. It's like when the angels look at the Lord, that's what they say. And it's like they try to find other words and they just keep coming back to he is holy. He is holy. He is holy. He is worthy. He is worthy of our praise. He is worthy. I feel like we're entering a season where God desires to reveal his holiness to us. Not in the kind where, like, he's going to zap us, like we see in the Old Testament. But I, I believe that when we get a bigger picture, a clearer understanding of the holiness of God, the desires of this world fall away. When we have a better understanding, a clearer understanding of God's holiness. He will give us the desire to be pure before him. And so this is, was not part of my message this morning, but I just feel like it's, it's important. And I just want to, I just want to pray that over us this morning. Lord, I thank you that you are merciful and gracious and loving, but ultimately we praise you and we worship you 
because you are holy. You are holy. You are set apart. There is none like you. You are pure. And we worship you today because you are holy. I ask, Lord, that you will continue to give us greater glimpses of your holiness. That you will draw us close to you. That you will purify us. That we will be a pure, sweet sound in worship and our lives poured out for you will bring honor and glory to you. We love you, Jesus. Lord, we thank you for your word. And we thank you that your word is inspired by you. And that when we read your word, your words are truth and they bring life. And we invite you to come this morning to speak to each one of us through your words of truth. We invite you to bring your life within us this morning. Amen. This morning we're going to look at Luke chapter 5. So just a bridge from last week. This is kind of hard to figure out how to transition into an actual sermon now. Um, God's good. He's good. He is here. He has been meeting with us this week. And he's just, I just feel like he's just like, I don't know, hovering here. And, and one of the things that I felt like he reminded me of this week is that we read all through scripture like he wants us to want him, right? He wants us to seek him, to search after him. But the reality is he likes to spend time with us too. He's not just saying, come and be in my presence and come and spend time with me. It's like, no, he wants to be with us. And I feel like that's what we're experiencing this morning. He wants to be here. He's been honored by our worship. He wants to be here with us. So, Lord, we invite you to speak to us, to be with us as we look in your word. In Luke chapter 5, we were following along with the quizzers. Last week, um, we learned, we studied the temptations of Jesus. And we see that after Jesus was baptized and tempted by the devil in the wilderness, he began his earthly ministry by teaching in the synagogues, 
casting out demons, and healing all kinds of diseases. So this week we're going to pick up reading in Luke chapter 5, starting at verse 1. And again, this is in the ESV version. Luke chapter 5, starting at verse 1. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing on, pressing in on him to hear the word of the Lord, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. And he saw two boats by the lake. But the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon Peter's, he asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word, I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed, thank you, ESV, how about we caught? Okay, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. When we read this as a flat story off the page, we might picture a peaceful scene along the lake. People seated nicely in rows, crisscross applesauce, quietly listening to this itinerant preacher. But most likely what was happening along the shore of the lake was a very chaotic scene. Jesus is standing by the lake, the lake of Gennesaret, and he's teaching the people. But likely the crowds were pressing in on him. You know, like when you've got someone standing there and they're not up on a, on a um, stage or something higher, like you want to be able to see Who's talking, you know? So you're pressing in, you're trying to see. The short ones like me would be trying to, you know, find their way to the front of the crowd. There may be others who have a sick relative with them and they, and they want to get their, their sick relative up to this teacher because they've also heard that he, he performs all these different kinds of healings and miracles. And, and so I would imagine there was a lot of jostling and, and maybe not even very quiet, Right? It's impossible to put a whole crowd of people together without any noise. So we see that Jesus decided to get into a boat and push back from the shore a little bit so that it was easier for him to teach the people, right? And so he's sitting in the boat and he's teaching the people. And after he finished teaching, he told Simon to let down your nets. Okay, now Simon was the fisherman, Jesus was not. He was a carpenter, right? He tells Simon to to let down the nets. Simon had a little discussion. Like, I understand. I probably would have been like, but this isn't the time of day to go fishing. Simon obeyed, and they enclosed a large number of fish. I'm stressing that word. If any of you quizzers get it wrong tonight, (laughs) that's on you. They enclosed a large number of fish. 
and their nets were breaking. So they signaled for others to come and help them, right? And then there were so many fish that both boats started to sink. That's a large catch, especially since we just read that they were out all night and had caught nothing. Simon Peter's response was one of awe. In fact, he even told Jesus to leave. I would imagine that perhaps he was feeling like, who is this holy man? I'm certainly not worthy to be in his presence. I'm a sleepy fisherman. It's interesting, and I love this little exchange because Simon Peter is like, whoa, you need to go. I can't be near you. I'm not worthy of being with you. Like, my boat's not good enough for you. And Jesus said to him, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. I see who you are. I know who you are. I know you're not perfect. I see your flaws. I see your sins. Don't be afraid. I'm going to make you a fisher of men. Jesus looked at him with mercy, and then he spoke life and destiny over Peter. I'm going to make you a fisher of men. This is my vision for you. In Mark and Matthew, It's recorded that Jesus said to Simon and his brother Andrew, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Follow me. Basically, Jesus was saying, apprentice under me and I will teach you to do what I do. That's what that word, that phrase meant in Peter's mind. Because you see, we need to understand the culture a little bit to understand the power of those two words. Follow me. Simon and the others left everything and followed Jesus. So what would make Simon Peter drop his nets, leave a family business, and follow this teacher? Well, I'm glad you asked. Let's learn a little bit about what a rabbi was. Okay, Jesus was considered a rabbi. In those days, a rabbi was a spiritual master, one who was an excellent teacher and set a good example of life with God. Every Something that's interesting, I think, is that every rabbi had a yoke. It was their set of teachings, their way of interpreting the scriptures, and... Um, and, and their way of understanding what it meant to live, to thrive in the world that God had created. So every rabbi had a yoke. Does that, like, does that connect with another verse, you know? Jesus said in Matthew 11, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. All of you who are weary and burdened, come to me. Take and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. We often picture that verse, you know, as 
as oxen with a big yoke that, you know, we get yoked in with Jesus. And, and that's not a bad analogy. But I think that this helps give an even deeper understanding. When Jesus says, take my yoke upon you, he's saying, take my teachings and my way of life upon you. And I will give you rest. Rabbis were itinerant teachers. Some of them were farmers or blacksmiths or carpenters. Some of them would have still had part-time jobs or, or worked part of the time and traveled around. They went um, from place to place teaching in the synagogues. And typically, um, a rabbi, before they would become a rabbi, they would train under another rabbi. And around the age of 30, they would then gather their own disciples, their own followers. Okay, so hopefully some dots are being connected here. Um, how could one become a rabbi? Well, the Jewish education system, in, in the Jewish education system, usually the kids would start going to school at the age of five. So that sounds typical, right? Um, the school was usually, it was called the house of the book, and it would be connected, most times connected to the synagogue in town. And when the children were there, by the time they were 12 or 13 years old, they would have memorized the Torah. The Torah is the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. I'm reading through Leviticus right now. How about we memorize it? And then, at that point, most of the students were sent home after they learned the Torah around the age of 12 or 13. Most of them were sent home to learn the family business, get married, and have a family. Only the best of the best of the best, not even all of Harvard, would have the opportunity to apply to be an apprentice of a rabbi. If you were the best of the best of the best, and you found a rabbi whose yoke, whose teaching you agreed with or wanted to learn under, then you would, uh, you would submit an application of some kind to this rabbi, and the rabbi would drill you with questions. Questions like, well, how well do you know the Torah? And who do you think the Nephilim were in Genesis 6? And which rabbi do you follow, Rabbi Hillel or Rabbi Shammai? One is strict and one is lenient. If he thought, if the rabbi thought you had enough of intelligence and a good work ethic and audacity to one day be a rabbi yourself, he would say, okay, come follow me. Follow me. At that point, you would leave everything and go be with your rabbi and become a student of your rabbi. And you would go everywhere your rabbi went. In Luke 6, 40, Jesus made this statement. A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. That was one of the goals of a rabbi, to be, I mean, of an apprentice, of a disciple, was to be like their rabbi. That was the key. To be, the key was to be with your rabbi so you could become 
like your rabbi. The point was to become like your rabbi so you could then do what your rabbi did and eventually also become a rabbi who would call others to follow this way of life. Now, Simon and Andrew and James and John were fishermen. That means they didn't make the cut to be a disciple under a rabbi. They weren't the elite of Harvard or Yale. They were in the group of young Jewish teens who were sent home to learn the family business and quote-unquote make babies and pray you can be a rabbi someday. Jesus invited all kinds of people to be his disciples. Jesus was not selective in who he called to follow him. So we see him here. He says to Andrew, I mean, he says to Simon Peter, don't be afraid, I will make you fishers of men. A little bit later in the text, he says to Levi, come follow me. Right? So there's this understanding, and that's why Peter left his nets to follow Jesus. It was a common, understood terminology. Jesus' invitation to Peter and Andrew and James and John was the same invitation that a rabbi would give to a disciple. Follow me. Learn to live my way. My teachings and my way of life. And you know what? Jesus still is calling all kinds of people to follow him today. And I believe that's why we're all here. We've heard his call to follow him. So how do we live like a disciple of Jesus? Becoming a disciple is not just praying a prayer so you can be saved from eternal punishment. A disciple is, as Dallas Willard puts it, someone whose ultimate goal is to live their life the way Jesus would if he were me. The Apostle John put it this way in 1 John 2, 6, whoever claims to live in Jesus must live as Jesus did. How would Jesus live if he were me? How would Jesus live if he were me? A woman living in the 21st century, a wife, a mother, someone who loves to teach, someone who lives with more resources than most of the rest of this world. How would Jesus live if he were me? How would Jesus live if he was literally walking in my shoes, going to my job, walking in my neighborhood, going to my school, serving my family, raising the next set of disciples. Because mamas, that's what you're doing. 
you're raising the next set of disciples and it's a high and holy calling. How would Jesus live if he were me? Discovering the answer to that question really is what our life is all about as followers of Jesus. It's a journey that we're on for a lifetime. What does it look like to live the ways of Jesus by being with him and becoming like him? In Luke 5 and 6, which is the, the two chapters that, this, that the quizzers are studying this week, we read some of, of the, Luke's record of the things that Jesus did and of his teachings, some of his ways and his yoke. So I just want to highlight a few. We do not have time to read through all of it, but some of Jesus' ways, okay? So that's what we often think about first are the things that he did because that's what we see, right? Um, so what were some of his ways? He, he healed people. He healed, um, in this text this week, we see that he healed a man full of leprosy. He restored a man's right hand that was withered. Um, he healed a paralyzed man. He also, he also gave, brings spiritual healing. He not only healed the paralyzed man, but actually first he forgave him of his sins, right? He cured those who were troubled with unclean spirits or evil spirits. In Luke 6, 18 and 19, we see this recorded. Many came to hear Jesus and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him and healed them all. And he also taught the people how to live in God's kingdom. In chapter 6, there's a, a big section of Luke's recordings of what Jesus taught the people. So this is some of his yoke some of his teachings that he was calling the people up into. And um, I'm not, again, not going to read all of it, but I would like to highlight a couple things. There's a whole list in, um, in chapter 6. And it's, it's a list that may be familiar. I'm just going to go down the list. He says, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. Give to everyone who begs from you. And then what we sometimes call the golden rule. In this translation, it says, as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. Do to others as what you would want them to do to you. It's kind of what we sometimes call the golden rule. Like, Okay, so... This is a whole list of teachings that Jesus is, is giving the people. And then he says in verse 32, If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? Even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expect nothing, expecting nothing in return, 
and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is, is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. Now, some of you may have, may have experienced different degrees and levels of wrestling with these verses. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you or persecute you. But I was really, um, over Christmas break, I was reading through a book of stories from the persecuted church. And I was challenged by this one particular story. And I'd like to share it this morning as um, a picture of what it can look like to allow the Holy Spirit to give you the kind of love that Jesus is talking about in this picture, in this verse. There's a story of a 13-year-old girl who had to flee her country. Uh, She lived in Bhutan. And she had to leave um, because she was a follower of Jesus, and she was rejected by her family and community and was told by the, by the police that she had to leave. She traveled with a, a small group of other believers from her town in Bhutan. They traveled through India, where they were um, beaten and robbed one night, and they finally made it to Nepal, to a, a refugee camp in Nepal. And she lived in this refugee camp, And through all of those experiences, her her fire for telling people about Jesus only grew stronger, which is something I don't understand. But I think we won't understand it unless we go through it. Her faith was so strong. She continued to share her love for Jesus in Nepal. And One day, about two years after she left Bhutan, so by now she's about 15 years old, Purnima and a few others snuck out of the refugee camp to go to a village about two hours away to talk to people about Jesus because someone had invited them to come. When they were in that village, they were arrested, they were interrogated, they were beaten, they were um, tried in a um, trial of some kind, and sentenced to three years in prison because of sharing their faith. So she's in this prison. There's, um, most of the prisoners were men, but there was one cell. All of the women that were in that prison were in the same cell. So it was, I don't know how big the cell was. It didn't say. Um, They were all in the same cell, and there's all kinds of people in there. There was one person in particular. Um, Her name was Tulasa, and she was in prison because she had murdered somebody and she was a very hard, harsh woman. So the first Christmas that they were in prison, Pranima felt like she had an idea. She used all of her meager prison money allotment, like everybody got a little bit of money that they could save up and then there would they could send people out to the village to buy things with their money. She had saved all her money. So she asked one of the guards to go out to the village to get something for her. And what she asked for was chicken and vegetables. And she made all of the women in that prison cell a Christmas meal. 
Mind you, they had not treated her well. She was the youngest prisoner in the cell. She used all her money to make a Christmas meal for them. And the hardened murderer said to her, why would you ever do this for us? And she said, have you ever heard of Christmas? And she began to tell the story of Jesus, of who he is, of his love for each of them. In God's mercy, Pranima and those who had been arrested with her were released early. But before she was released, she had the opportunity to talk with Toulouse day after day after day. And before Pranima was released, Toulouse gave her life to Christ. And the story goes on. After Toulouse was set free from prison, she went on to become a leader in a local church. That's love. I don't understand it. All I know is that the only way I would be able to have that kind of love is through the power of the Holy Spirit living in me. Because it's not natural. It's not normal. That's the kind of love that Jesus was calling his people into. Says, this is my yoke. And it's easy, really. Love. Love your enemies. Pray for those who abuse you. Speak blessing over those who curse you. Love is powerful. The second part of the teaching that we see here in Luke 6 really kind of emphasizes Jesus' instructions to be generous in grace. It says, Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. And then it says, for with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. I used to always just connect that to the giving verse. In fact, I think in most of our Bibles, that's all one paragraph. But what if that principle applies to the whole list? What if the, with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you, applies also to his instructions to judge not, to condemn not, to forgive? What if he's calling us to be generous with grace? as we relate to the people around us. And the third part that I'd like to highlight a little bit yet this morning is from verses 46 through 49. In 46 through 49 of chapter 6 of, in Luke, it says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. 
He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against the house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. Jesus is saying, learn his teachings and practice his way of life. Learn his teachings and put it into practice. Everyone who comes to me, Jesus said, and hears my words and does them is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. Jacob, can you go back to that, like that extra picture that I had added this morning? How many of you vacation in South Carolina? I think you guys all do, don't you? Oh, you go to North Carolina. Oh, okay. You might be safe in North Carolina. <laughs> there are, um, I, I, just, I just thought it was interesting. I was doing a little bit of, of digging, and in, there are certain parts of South Carolina where the sea level is rising. Like, they've been monitoring it. They have all these fancy instruments and ways to, like, actually measure. And the ocean level is rising about a half an inch a year. And there have been... Um, so between that and the fact that some of the land is also settling, which is a known fact, they're having more and more flooding issues along the coast in certain parts of, of South Carolina, and especially in the city of Charleston. And uh, this picture just kind of like caught my attention because if I was planning a vacation to South Carolina and I was looking for a beach house, I would want to know that the beach house I was going to had a foundation. Because there are several houses that this is, this is, this picture is from either 2022 or 2023. Like that's, it's recent. You know, I mean, you don't know what you get when you just go online and do a search, right? Verbo or Airbnb. I mean, there's, those two should be reputable places to rent from. Jesus is saying, the one house is the person who hears what I'm saying, but doesn't practice it. The other one is the person who hears what he's saying and puts it into practice. And what I love about the word practice is it doesn't have to be perfect. He's not saying, listen to what I'm saying and then be perfect says, listen to what I'm saying and practice it. Put it into practice. Work on it. So one of the things that made me kind of wonder is these teachings of Jesus if we've grown up in the church, we've heard them a lot, but we don't always necessarily understand what they mean truly, right? But these teachings, Jesus said, 
His yoke is easy and his burden is light. And I'm looking at these teachings going, that's hard stuff. What do you mean, Jesus, that, 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 your, that your yoke is easy and your burden is light? So I was thinking, there, there's got to be more. We need to look for more clues of how Jesus lived this out. Because remember, he wasn't just God. He was human when he lived on the earth. He had to rely on the Holy Spirit to help him live in this way. And in Luke 4.14, we see that after the devil's temptation, Jesus returned to Galilee, Galilee in the power of the Holy Spirit. And in the verses I read earlier, it says the people recognized there was something different about him. And they would try to get close to him to touch him because power was coming out from him. There was something about the Holy Spirit being embodied by Jesus. But guess what? That same Holy Spirit lives within us. In Romans, four, in Romans 8, we read that when we surrender our lives to Jesus, the Holy Spirit is given to us. The Holy Spirit lives within us. We also read multiple places in the, in the New Testament scriptures about being filled with the Holy Spirit. And it's through the power of the Holy Spirit that we can love like Pranima did. It's through the power of the Holy Spirit that we can actually do the things that Jesus taught and lived. On my own, I can't love my enemies, those who hate me or hurt me or abuse me. But with the Holy Spirit living within me, I'm empowered to love the difficult people in my life. On my own, I can't speak kind, life-giving words, blessings over those who curse me or speak bad about me or ruin my reputation. But with the Holy Spirit living within me, I'm empowered to speak words of life. Jesus was filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. And my encouragement to each one of us today is ask the Holy Spirit to fill you. Ask him to fill you. He's within you, but you know what? We can stifle him. We can shut him down. We can ignore his voice. Ask him to fill you. The second clue that we have about how Jesus was actually able to live out what he was teaching is that he spent dedicated time with the Father. He practiced solitude and prayer. He spent dedicated time with the Father. Luke 5.16 says, Jesus would withdraw to desolate places and pray. Luke 6.12 says, Jesus went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. He spent time dedicated time with the Father. Just a side note, a couple things. The spiritual practice of solitude is just that. It's being alone with God in a quiet place. The spiritual practice of prayer. Prayer is more than just asking God for 
a wish list. It's a way in which we commune with God. We communicate, yes, we talk, we listen, but also commune. It's being with God. Recently, I read um, a little outline for about four different levels of prayer, which I thought was interesting and, and maybe will be helpful as we close this morning. Four levels of prayer include talking to God, which is maybe through um, psalms or other pre-written prayers. It's using other people's words, and there's nothing wrong with talking to God through those words, right? Especially through his words and psalms, because we know those are powerful and true. But talking to God. Then we have talking with God. Talking with God is when we talk to him about our our life, we, t- we give gratitude, we're thanking him for things, we lament, we talk about the hard things with him, that the hard things that we're going through. Um, we, talking with God is prayer and, and intercession. It's calling on God to fulfill his promises in our families, in our region. Then we have listening to God, which is learning to hear his voice. And then being with God, which is also a part of prayer. Just being with him. Looking upon his goodness and receiving his love for you. That's the part of prayer that if you're a to-do list person feels like I'm just sitting here. I'm not doing anything. But that's what it means to commune with God, to be with him. To slow down. To quiet our hearts, our minds, our thoughts, and be with him. Recently, I read an interesting quote by Dallas Willard, and it says this. The greatest issue facing the world today with all its heartbreaking needs is whether those who are identified as Christians will become disciples. Students, apprentices, practitioners of Jesus. Steadily learning from him how to live the life of the kingdom of heaven in every corner of human existence. That's a pretty sobering thought. There's a lot of problems in the world. There's a lot of heartache. There's wars. There's famines. There's brokenness and abuse. But I think what he's saying here is what would really happen in the world if everyone who claims to know Jesus would actually follow him? Would actually follow him? Do the things that Jesus did because we're with him and becoming like him. 
You know, in, in our country today, about 63% of Americans claim to be Christians. But when you look into um, different data things and, and several surveys, it seems that only about 4% truly follow Jesus. It's a really big disparity. Only 4% want to be with Jesus and become like him and do the things he did. The purpose of becoming a disciple under a rabbi is to carry on his teachings and work. So my question as we close this morning is, how do you respond to Jesus' invitation to come follow me? How am I going to respond? How, have each, how are each of us going to respond this morning? Following Jesus is not convenient, quick, or easy. It will cost you everything. It will include laying down your rights, your time, your plans, your way of doing things. It will disrupt your life. But it will bring great reward in the kingdom, kingdom of God. Jesus said, everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And I believe his invitation for all of us this morning is to come follow him in every area of our lives. In every area of our lives, not just the easy ones, not just the public areas, in every area of our lives. So as we close, I just want to invite you to stand and the worship team and prayer team can come. This morning, as we bring our thoughts down to a spot where we're, you know, ready to transition to the rest of our day or whatever, I just want to encourage you to have a conversation with God. What area of your life is he saying, come follow me in that area? Let me show you how I would do it if I was you. Maybe it's at work. Maybe it's at home. Who knows? Let me show you how I would do it if I was you. And also, I want to encourage you to pray and ask the Holy Spirit to empower you, to give you the power to walk in the ways of Jesus in everyday life, not just on Sunday mornings for the two hours that we're here. You realize this is just, a, this, is, this is only a tiny piece, right? Jesus is saying, come follow me out that door. Come follow me in your neighborhood. Come follow me down the school hallways. Come follow me while you're driving down the road. 
while you're in the restaurants, wherever it is, at the grocery store. And Lord, we thank you that you are so patient with us. We thank you that your invitation is to come follow you and to practice doing what you do. We thank you that there's grace and mercy when we don't get it right. We thank you that you empower us to do the things you ask us to do. That just blows my mind over and over again. Thank you that you're the one who gives us the ability to do what you're asking us to do. And so, Lord, we yield to you today. We step out in faith and say, I will obey. I will follow you, Jesus, in my neighborhood. I will follow you, Jesus, as I walk down the halls in my school. I will follow you, Jesus. We thank you. We thank you, Jesus, for your word. We thank you for your teaching. We thank you for showing us the way to live. And I pray a blessing over each person today that each one in this room will have a desire to be with Jesus and become like him so we can do what he did. Let's worship. I encourage you to spend time talking with the Lord. If you want prayer, the prayer team will be here. They're always willing to pray with you. But let's remember, when we walk out that door, Jesus is saying, come follow me.